You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. And that quote is from Isabel LaFleche. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our October the 21st show. And I just want to let you know to our loyal listeners, thank you for tuning in as we are approaching the end of 11 years, going into 12 years on the air and and for those of you who are listening for the first time, I just want to let you know that, yes, you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf. And welcome, welcome to the days. Again, this autumn weather, I'm just loving this autumn weather in the southeastern part of the United States. Our show, and we have a wonderful author on deck for you this morning. I can't wait to introduce you you to him and him you. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, how much how much attention do you pay to you yourself? We often ignore ourselves. We don't practice awareness. We it's, it, by the time we know notice that we're feeling overwhelmed or or we're just overly burdened or we're, we're sad, it's almost too late. By the time we notice that uh, something's happening, so as we practice awareness, we can spot, oh, I feel like I'm going going the wrong way, and we can turn without having to do that sharp turn. We can take a gentle turn and start to go down a better path. Uh, and this is some of the things that are, are uh, discussed, covered in the book, Heal Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. If you really want to learn more about and start to waking up to what we really are. I encourage you to get a copy of Hill Gorgeous Wisdom Knows the Way. It's an ebook, print and hardback, and it's by yours truly, Denise Turney. Hill Gorgeous Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. I encourage you to treat yourself to a copy of the book today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest this morning. And today's guest is William Moz. And William writes short stories and novels. Books he has written and also published include The the Bucharest Legacy. If I'm not saying it right, I hope he corrects me. The Bucharest Dozier and Conclave 2021. His works have won several awards, including Best Book Finalist Award, Forward Indies Finalist, Global Thriller Grand Prize, and National Indie Excellence Award. And William also, he studied fiction writing at Harvard University. He attended medical school at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And I encourage you to visit William online. You can learn more about his books and more about his background as you enjoy today's show. And his website URL is williammaz.com, and I'll spell that, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-M-A-Z.com. W I L L I A M M A Z dot com. And that's so easy to remember. And now we're going to go, and I hope I pick up the right line. Welcome to Off the Shelf, William. Hello. How are you? Pleasure I'm, to be doing here. Fat, fat. Oh, glad to have you here. And I hear an echo for some reason. 
Okay, so it's gone. So I want to welcome you again to the show. The first few questions that I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who comes on. I'm hearing an echo. I ask every guest who comes on the show, just to, so we can give the listeners a little background on the on the guests before we start talking about their books. So to kick off today's show, William, can you tell off the shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Well, a little bit like the character in my books, um, I was born of uh, Greek parents in uh, Bucharest, Romania, uh, during the communist days, and uh, lived there till I was six years old. Then uh, we were finally allowed to leave. I mean, we had uh, requested to leave. My parents did for decades, but uh, for some reason we were allowed to leave, and uh, I spent uh, two and a half years in a refugee camp in uh, mm. the outskirts of Athens. Actually, it was a um, <clears throat> it was a former military camp where you know uh, wooden barracks and outdoor toilets and that whole thing. We received care packages from America, from which for which we were very grateful, by the way. So you'll know where that money goes to. And um, finally, we were, my father was a doctor, so we were allowed to come to the United States because they needed doctors at the time. And so I grew up here from the age of eight. I attended uh, Harvard and then, uh, like you said, medical school. But I always had a passion for writing ever since seventh grade, Mrs. Garbutt's English class where she asked us to write some short stories, and I wrote one where the class applauded, and so I was hooked. And so I've been writing uh, my whole life. I wrote my first novel when I was in medical school, actually, and almost got picked up by Knopf, but then they wanted me to rewrite the ending. At that time, I was in residency, where I was not sleeping for 36 hours at a time, I had no time to write a novel, so I didn't make the changes, and that fell by the wayside. Finally, I decided to retire from medicine and uh, devote my, you know, time to uh, my passion, and I'm I'm glad I did. Wow! Oh my goodness! Thanks for what you shared. You know, we meet each other. We pass each other on the street. We we meet each other at work. We're colleagues. We work. For years together, whatever humans in general, and we don't know each other's stories, each other's experiences, and a lot of times even relatives don't know. I've interviewed people here on off the shelf where they didn't know their parents, their background, and it was maybe some some uh, something spectacular or traumatic they went through, and they, they didn't know till they stumbled across some of their parents' writings or something they stumbled across. We we really don't know ourselves or each other as much as we think we do. Now, now, I wanted to ask you next, as a kid, William, you said writing was your passion, and, you, and bless you, growing, the experiences you had as a kid. As a, but when you were a little boy, what did, you, what did you dream of being when you grew up? Well, you know, my father's a doctor, my brother's a doctor, my uncles are doctors. It was pretty much written for me that I would be a doctor. And not only that, but if you're an immigrant, um, you know, the first thing your parents tell you uh, is you, you need a diploma. You need to be able to, you know, earn a living. And um, so the idea of being a writer, which I wanted to be, 
as I said, as early as seventh grade, and I had visions of it, and I was reading Dostoevsky and all. And then I, you know, my parents said, "Look, you know, you're not going to live like Dostoevsky. You're not going to uh, be poor or or have some um, royalty uh, lift you out of your um, poverty and give you money to write. You're going to have to uh, have a profession." So. I did that, and medicine is a wonderful profession, but it's very time-consuming. You can't, uh, you know, there have been a lot of writers throughout history, but medicine in those days, you know, um, during, you know, uh, um, 18th, 19th century, you know, was different than it is today. You know, doctors led it actually a a real life. They had time to write. Today, you don't have time to write. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to write during my medical career at midnight, you know, from like 8 to midnight um, every night and get up at 5.30 in the morning and go to the operating room. So it was a tough time to uh, be a doctor and write at the same time these days. But I tried to keep up my uh, my uh, abilities, my craft, during those years, took a lot of courses and spent a year with Gordon Lish. Um, I don't know if you remember who he is. He was an editor who um, discovered several writers. Um, and, you know, I kept my um, my craft in order to be able to write when I finally decided to do it full time. Oh, good for you. Now, you studied writing when you were in school at Harvard. In what ways, looking back now, because you did, you worked in Madison. In what ways have did those studies impact your writing? You mean the, the taking writing classes? Yes, it's, it's actually studying it. Because a lot of writers don't. How did you? How do you looking back see how that impacted your writing today? Yeah, let me tell you. Um, at first, I, you learn a lot, but there's only so much you can learn in writing classes. First of all, they're not conducted on a one-on-one basis. Most writing classes, you have a teacher, a, a writer, an actual writer, who you know um, listens to short stories read out loud by one of his ten or fifteen students in class, and then you get people uh, giving their opinions, having heard it for the first time and not having read it, and so the student doesn't really get personal attention from from a writer. Um, mm. And what you get is mostly opinion from other students. Well, uh. what good is that? They don't know any more than I do. Uh, <laughs> so I was disappointed after a while with writing classes. With Gordon Lish, it was very much, uh, it was like five or six students. We had a six-hour classes once a week. That was... Uh, that was uh, a setup where you could get more personal attention. But really, I started learning uh, writing when I hired a private editor to review a book that I was preparing. And that editor was able to then to sit and tell me line by line, paragraph by paragraph, what was good, what was bad, and so forth. Um, you don't get that anywhere unless you pay somebody to actually do it with you. And that's unfortunate. Mm. 
but that's how it is. Uh, so writing classes are good up to a point, but then they become repetitive and you've reached the level where you can't go beyond unless you get personal attention. And you keep writing. Interesting. I'm so glad you shared that and I asked that. So I would have thought just the, just the opposite. So, oh, my God, that was very eye-opening. I guess it does depend on if, if there's somebody in the class or a professor who takes an interest in you and sits down with you one-on-one, then it, that could be extremely beneficial, but very interesting. Uh, now, when, you, when, when did you start writing the Bucharest Dozier, and where did the ideal for the story come from? Well, the idea for the story, uh, first of all, started as a love story. My first book was the love story plot in the Bucharest dossier, the book that I wrote in medical school. And it was a psychological book, a psychological thriller, where the love object actually ended up being uh, a a uh, creation of his imagination, that she never existed and that it was actually a doll that he grew up with and that he uh, created in his own mind. Um, that ending Knopf didn't like. They wanted a real, a real person for him to find after uh, 20 years of not having seen her. So <clears throat> that's where the idea of the dossier started, but then I realized I needed something more. Why is he going back 20 years later? Well, maybe I should put it in 1989 when the revolution was taking place. And then you ask yourself, well, what, what's he doing going back in the middle of a revolution? Why didn't he go back before? And so forth. So then he has to be somehow involved with the U.S. government, what better thing to make him than, you know, a secret agent, a CIA agent who is sent to Bucharest to find out what's going on with the uh, Ceausescu regime. So then I can get into the plots of, of the book. You know, they come in together. It didn't, uh, they come in one at a time. They don't come together. You know, as you develop and as you write, you think of yet another plot line. And that's how I write. I don't write with the outlines. Um, They don't work. I write in order to find out what I'm writing about. And in fact, it's a very slow process because then you have to go back and rewrite the beginning. (laughs) Um, But that's the only way I know how to write. Wow, you actually... Oh, yeah. my goodness, so you go back, Do you, once you get the story down, and I, I want to really delve into this more later in the interview, you actually start going back and read. How much of the story do you end up rewriting? I'm just curious, when you do it a lot. Uh, without an outline. A lot. I mean, I'm not the only one. I mean, there are very few writers who are on either extreme. I mean, uh, the, the writers who actually plot out everything are – are those uh, writers who write the, the the little mysteries, you know, of, uh, you know, Agatha Christie, where, you know, you have ten people in a hotel, and one of them is the murderer, and you have everybody, all the clues and stuff like that. That you can actually map onto a piece of paper in terms of a, of a uh, plot. But 
if you want to write a more complicated, more uh, even personal book, which the Bucharest dossier is, um, you you have to let it flow naturally, and you have an idea of where you want to go. You might know some scenes that you want to put in in the middle, at the end. You might know how it ends, uh, but you don't know how to get there. And as you're starting to write, you realize, you know, you get ideas. I mean, this is the beauty of writing for me, is the aha moments that you get as you're writing. You realize, oh, my God, this could be linked to that scene, and this character could have a backstory where is related to this character. And it begins to create a, a web. That's how I think of it, a spider's web of interconnections between scenes between themes and between characters and then you go back and you say well wait a minute in order for this to happen this must have happened at the beginning you know and so you go back and you know you don't throw it out you change it okay and there's many parts of it you save so as it grows and it changes again then you go back and and rewrite certain scenes that you had written before, you throw some out. Sometimes they're your favorites, which, you know, you're killing your favorite child, but that's what you have to do. You've got to be ruthless. And, you know, the whole idea is to create a, a whole, you know, a, a piece of work that hangs together. And what is not hanging together, you have to throw out. And you finally are satisfied with it, but, you know, I don't know which writer famously said, you're never finished with a book. You just grow tired of it. <laughs> oh, my God. I've never heard that. How interesting. But, yeah, that is generally how the if the writing process goes, unless you're writing a um, – uh, I forget the, the – I'm, I'm forgetting the words right now – a formula book. Where you're following a formula that you've seen work. Romance novels, some mystery, right? It's a or formula, but you could almost determine what's going to yeah. happen ha- halfway through or from the beginning because it's following a formula. Now, can you give off-the-shelf listeners? You said the Bucharest Dozier started as like a romance story. Can you give us a little more, uh, an overview, a brief synopsis of the book? Yes. So the book starts with. Uh, Bill Heflin, my hero, who is uh, who was recruited from uh, Harvard into the CIA, and then uh, he finds himself in December of 1989 as a analyst for the CIA. Now he is a unique analyst in that he runs his own mole inside the KGB. That's unique because analysts don't run moles field agents do, Uh, but this mole, whose uh, name he doesn't even know, he codenames Boris, uh, just started sending him intelligence several years back, which has proven to be very accurate and, in fact, has made Boris the best asset the CIA has inside the KGB. So in December of 89, Heflin Uh, receives a message from Boris to come to Bucharest to, quote, create history. 
Now, we have to remember what was going on in December of 89. The Berlin Wall had just fallen, and all the former communist countries have, had already turned to democracy peacefully. All but one, Romania. Romania was led at the time by Nicolae Ceausescu, who was a hardline Stalinist in power since 1965, and his wife, Elena, who was like a Lady Macbeth type, uh, almost more cruel than he was. And um, <clears throat> nobody expected Romania to change the democracy peacefully because he would never let go. His strong suit was his secret service, the Securitate, it was called, that spied on everyone. Um, and there were over 100,000 people in psychiatric wards uh, who were political prisoners. All the telephones came from the factory with a microphone inside of them so they could listen not only to your phone calls but to everything that went on in the room. <laughs> Uh, people were being followed. You couldn't joke about Ceausescu or communism or anything like that because you would immediately have a Secret Service guy pull you into the office and so forth. So it was a very much a totalitarian system with people afraid to speak. And there were informants. There was estimated anywhere from one out of four to one out of ten people in the population was an informant for the Securitate. And these people were not informants because they loved the system. They were threatened. If you're not an informant, if you refuse, that means you're part of the uh, those against the government, in which case you were put on a blacklist. So you had to inform. Mm. And in fact, the informants were so scared that even if they couldn't find anything on the person they were told to inform on, they would often make it up, put the other person in trouble just to save their own skin, you see. So it was a, it was a society where nobody trusted anybody other than your very close friends and relatives, uh, afraid to say anything in public, where there was famine because you had, you had to stand in line. For, I mean, I, I visited Romania more than a dozen times throughout the 70s and 80s during Ceausescu's regime. I had relatives there. And the language, I still loved the language. So I wanted to go back. And I spent months there at, uh, at a time, and I was intrigued by the whole society because it was so different from the United States, and I learned what communism is really all about. It's a, it's a totalitarian system that is that is uh, really uh, anathema to any kind of free thinking or any kind of creativity or just basically even a peaceful life. So uh, that is what Heflin uh, finds when he returns to Bucharest, where he meets Boris. And Boris is always wearing a disguise, so he doesn't really know what Boris looks like or who Boris is. But Boris seems to know everything about Heflin's life. <clears throat> Boris turns out to be a puppeteer, not only of his life, but of, uh, of the revolution. So I try to, to intertwine the three threads. You know, I call the, the Bucharest dossier a love story inside of a spy thriller. 
inside of a historical novel. And I try to, to blend all the three uh, threads of the, of the plots um, into each other so that they're all affecting the other plot line. Um, so as Heflin gets involved in the revolution, he begins to find out what the revolution is all about. Okay, it Just as a quick historical thing, the revolution starts in a town called Timisoara on the Hungarian border. It spreads to other, country, uh, other cities and eventually goes to Bucharest, the capital. Ceausescu finally flees in a helicopter. He is eventually caught in the countryside. A uh, kangaroo court is created, and he is summarily shot together with his wife. That's that's the quick outline of the revolution. But to this day, if you go to Romania, just 30 years later, nobody knows how the revolution happened. Was it a real spontaneous revolt by the people, or was it a coup? And one of the reasons they think it was a coup, and they're pretty much sure, well, there's several rings. One is that the revolution started in the town of Timișoara with snipers starting to shoot not only at the crowds, but at the military, which was standing idle. And the military um, panicked, then they started shooting into the crowd, which started the revolution in itself. Uh, it became very bloody by the end of it, uh, 1,500 to 2,000 people died, and probably more because the government hid the bodies and incinerated them every night um, after a, a clash. And so a lot of people just went missing. They're not even counted among the dead. So it became very bloody. And they found out that these snipers were actually from the Middle East, <laughs> didn't speak a word of Romanian. They were from Iraq, from Lebanon, from Syria, and they were hired hands. Nobody knows to this day who hired them. Now, nobody officially knows. I'm sure some people know. And the the dossiers that are in the Securitatis archives have not been released. And the reason is because some of the people involved are still either in power or prominent members of Romanian society, and they know the truth of what happened. So whenever there is a gap in history, it is a perfect place for the writer of fiction to step in and try to fill it. So in the first book, the Bucharest dossier, I try to explain how the revolution happened from everything that I have researched, which is a lot. Um, and the most plausible scenario of who started it and how it came about and who hired those snipers to begin with. Uh, In the second book, which takes place three years later, it's called The Bucharest Legacy, which just came out, The Rise of the Oligarchs. Uh, It happens three years later, Bill Heflin again, um, where he is tasked to bring out a defector from the KGB from Bucharest 
to find that the defector tells the CIA that there is a mole among, among them working for the KGB and that that mole is handled by a KGB agent known only as Boris. So that puts the that sets the CIA's hair on fire because if it's the same Boris that Heflin used to handle in the in the KGB, that means that all the information Heflin gave uh, that uh, Boris gave to Heflin was false, planted there by the KGB, and that in fact Heflin might be the mole in the CIA that Boris is running. So. Everything is turned on its head. His boss gives him one last chance to prove himself, his, his innocence. He sends him out to Bucharest, where Boris was last seen, to find Boris and clear his name. Well, when he gets to Bucharest, he finds out that he's not the only one looking for Boris. So is the KGB, because they want to find out who Boris is also, and whether Boris was a true KGB agent, always working for the CIA. So everybody's looking for Boris. What Heflin knows and nobody else does, which I divulged at the beginning of the book, so it's not a spoiler, is that Boris has been dead for over a year. Whoa! <laughs> so everybody's looking for a dead man. And Heflin is looking for the real mole, and it all gets entangled with this new class of people called the oligarchs in Romania. And the, we have to know that the oligarchs didn't just happen in Russia. Oligarchs happen in practically every single former communist country. And I can go into that if we have time. I don't know how long the interview is, but I can explain to you what an oligarch is and, and how it all happened, which I do in the book. Oh my God! You know what? When you think about what's even going on right now with Russia and Ukraine, and I know yeah. this doesn't tie into it, but I have, want to ask you this. I know this is Romania that we're talking about. This, these things happening. How much of the do, the Bucharest dossier are really based on real life facts versus what you've you've made up? How much are, no. is truly? No, it's all history. It's all history except for two things. Okay, the two gaps. One is who started the revolution, which nobody knows, and what happened to Ceausescu's money. Ceausescu was a huge thief. He stole from not only his own government, but demanded bribes for every transaction that uh, would happen between a Western company, let's say, and, and a, a Romania, for instance, they... Westerners bought grain. I mean, Romania had nothing to sell but grain and natural minerals. Nobody wanted to buy anything else they produced. <clears throat> and so if you needed to do any business with Romania, you had to bribe your way up to the leader himself. And he supposedly had uh, billions of dollars in offshore accounts, which nobody found. So that was another place where... I provide an answer to what happened to Ceausescu's billions and how the revolution started. Those are the only two places where I take a liberty because history cannot prove me wrong, at least not yet. Uh, 
the other things are very accurate. In fact, you know, I've spent over a year researching the revolution and the characters involved. I have some real uh, characters I put in uh, that actually go through the motions of what exactly happened in the revolution. And I also introduce new characters that, inter- that interweave, you know, fictional characters, uh, personal characters to Heflin's life that get um, intertwined with the real characters in in the book. But the events of the revolution are very accurate. Wow. So this is like in a history book. Oh, my gosh. Wow, you could get so much from this book. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Mr. Bill Eplin. Uh What is his personality like? Is he a hard guy? Is he loving with his with his wife? Is he is he what what type of a person is he? And how did he get involved in in this type of line of work anyway? And is he based on a real life person? <laughs> That's, those are 15 questions in one. Are you sure you're not a reporter? <laughs> um, Bill Heflin is partly me. He's got, oh, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Flaubert was asked, you know, who is Madame Bovary? And he said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. She is me. So every every writer writes a little bit of himself in his characters, mm. but not all. And this is another thing we can talk about. And it's how much of your own life do you put in there? Um, the uh, <clears throat> Bill Heflin, um, he is not married in the first book. He is still pining away for his childhood sweetheart, which, who has taken on mythical proportions in his mind. She is the epitome of, of innocence and love, and that is what he is searching for. Um, his in his life, um, and so he is an idealist. He he ended up in the CIA because a professor of his that he loved at Harvard um, recruited him. Because Heflin, I, and I go into this in the book, I analyze an immigrant's mentality, and this doesn't have to be from Romania; it can be any immigrant, which is that. You feel that you are no longer the person uh, from the country you came from, in his case, Greek or Romanian, because he's now an American. So he doesn't belong in his old country. He really doesn't know how much he belongs in the new country. I mean, to him, uh, Romanian and Greek were his first two languages. English was his third, as is mine. And so... Um, you adjust to a new society, but you always feel temporary that this might be actually just a stopping place where on, on to your next place that you are. You know, you feel that there's no permanence in your life. Mm. You become almost like a quote-unquote gypsy, which is why I include a lot of um, talk about the gypsies in Romania, which are called the Roma. Uh, and we can go into that. But the life of a gypsy is one of being an itinerant or never in one place for long. And so that's how he feels. And he found that the CIA provided him with a home that he never thought he he would have in America. So for him, 
the CIA was a home. He didn't want to be a field agent. That's why he chose to be an analyst. He needed a place to go. He needed intellectual, um, uh, you know, uh, intellectual uh, um, intrigue and so forth, but he didn't want to be traveling the world as a James Bond type because he had traveled enough in his youth. He wanted a home. So that's why he was attracted to the CIA. And in fact, he hates, he doesn't want to go back. He's a reluctant hero. He doesn't want to go back to Romania because even if he is, he wants to search for his little girl, whom he knew as Pusha, he um, is afraid to find her. He doesn't know what the communist system has has done to her for the past 20 years, and he would almost rather keep her memory the way he has it rather than be spoiled by reality. So he's an idealist, and and the book uh, has an arc to his character, which all good books should have for their protagonist, which is he changes, of course, from being an innocent research analyst to being a field agent and to learning about um, all sorts of things, including can love last 20 years and um, can one believe in a person like Boris who who uh, becomes like a second father to him and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff involved in Heflin's life. By the end of the book, he has become um, quite a different person. Better. Wow. See, that's why I love I'm busy here off the interviews, whether here on Off the Shelf or another show, because you cannot put really what a story is fully about in a book description. You almost have to hear the author talk about it and then actually go out and buy and, and, and read the story or get it from a library and read it to learn more about it. Um, so is Bill, is he obligated to Boris? And then can you talk a little bit more about what a mole is? And we have about 20 minutes left. But is Bill obligated to to Boris? Um, and if not, why does he leave the woman he loves to go to Bucharest just because Boris told him to? Well, the woman he loves is in Bucharest. It's the little Pusha that he left behind. And uh, Boris... You know, I don't want to give a lot away here. Uh, He becomes obligated to Boris, but in a more deep way. But initially he's obligated to Boris because Boris is his asset in the KGB, and the agency is sending him there to find out who Boris is because they don't like to have moles inside the KGB um, whose identity they don't know for many reasons. One is they cannot control them. Uh, if they start wavering. And secondly, uh, they cannot help them if they get into trouble and become discovered. So the CIA definitely needs to find out who Boris is, and they want to find out what's going on with Ceausescu in Romania. So Boris becomes the center of the book. And and most people who have read the book tell me that they love Boris's personality. Um, Ah. So uh, he almost steals the show. And I'm very sad that uh, he dies by the end of the book, but um, he continues on in the second book in terms of uh, all the 
all that he has left behind in his life. And we find out what Boris has been doing with his life um, all these years that he was a KGB agent. We find that out in the second book. And the second book leaves open um, the question of why Boris, how Boris died. And the third book that I'm working on now will provide that answer, and it is actually um, continues to be with the same characters, um, but it takes place in Russia. With now, young, Boris is a lot more experienced with intelligence, I'm gathering, than yes. Bill. Uh, he, Bill is just starting out, correct? And Boris, how long has Boris been doing well, this Boris type of work? Not, he's the age of, of Bill's father. And, you know, it is, he's in his 60s. And, and so um, uh, history goes back a long way, but you're, you're, you're teasing out information out of me. <laughs> oh, I, I don't want to give the story away. I don't want to give it away, but as I was researching for it, it's funny that you say that readers really like Boris because as I was researching for the, this interview, I did, I, he was somebody, I said, this guy is shady. I, that's okay. <laughs> that was my, no. my perception of him. But then I, didn't, I haven't read the book yet, but that was what, just researching it, I said, this guy, can, he's shady. Now, this, uh, Boris turns out to be a good guy. And... Um, and turns out to be, like I said, a dear friend of um, of Heflin's and uh, almost a second father. So we we have to understand uh, Boris. He acts uh, ruthlessly sometimes, but he's got a good heart, and he's always protecting Heflin's rear end. Ah, uh, okay. I saw a movie recently. Um with Denzel Washington in it, that was a little bit like that, where there was some history with somebody else involved in what was happening current day in the story. Now, do the characters who appear in the Bucharest Dozier, do they all, in addition to Bill and Boris, what other characters, let me ask it this way, what other characters that appear in the Bucharest Dozier also show up in the Bucharest Legacy? Well, there are several characters um, that appear. One of them is uh, Irina, uh, Bill's uh, actress cousin, who uh, remained in Bucharest and uh, has survived very nicely, thank you. And she is being um, courted by one of the oligarchs that I talk about. Now, I think before we, you know, we run out of time, I think I should talk a little bit about what an oligarch is and and uh, how they came to power. Um, oh, sure, sure. Because the term goes back all the way to Aristotle, believe it or not. And an oligarch is not simply a, a wealthy person. An oligarch is a wealthy person whose wealth depends on the king or the ruler. Uh, oligarchs have existed throughout history. They weren't called that. They were called earls and dukes and barons and counts. But they were oligarchs. How did they get their wealth? Usually the king, after a battle where they where they gained new territory, would give one of his great generals or a 
political ally or a wonderful warrior a piece of land with the serfs on it uh, and toiling the ground. And he would give that piece of land and the title to his general and say, now you are, this is Essex, and now you're the Earl of Essex, let's say, or whatever. Now, why did the king do that? Throughout history, they've done this. And the reason is that the ruler needs a circle of friends, a network of oligarchs, powerful people, who prop him up, whose wealth depends on his remaining in power, Mm. who have skin in the game, okay, and who can control the population. If the king needs an army, his oligarchs will raise the army. If the king needs money, his oligarchs will raise taxes and so forth. And so the oligarchs also know that if they if their loyalty wanes, the king can always take it away. Okay, so for instance, in today's world, Putin had a meeting with his oligarchs, his main ones, before the Ukraine fiasco, and told them, "I've made you, and I can break you. I gave it to you, and I can take it away. So you are with me on this." And that's been reported in several media. And so. Um, that's an oligarch by definition. He gave them the wealth. They didn't create it. They didn't invent anything. They didn't uh, spend time in their basements creating the new apple. You know, they were given uh, the position of heads of Gazprom and all these other oil companies. They were just put there by Putin because they were loyal. And so he could take it away at any time. So uh, that's what oligarchs used throughout. Uh, that's what kings use throughout history to prop themselves up. Now, the funny thing is, communism was supposed to be an answer to that, contrary to that, because they were against the czar, which had his own oligarch system, nobility, to create an egalitarian society where there were no rich people and there were no poor, there was just everybody was paid equally. The irony is that the communist system created its own oligarchs. Mm. How did that happen? <clears throat> well, during the communist system, you know, I know this personally from Ceausescu's regime, but it could happen it happened in everyone. Everybody stole from the government. All the bureaucrats and all the heads of departments. Uh, siphoned money off their budgets and they had offshore accounts and they built houses in suburbs and so forth and they had private clubs that they went to and drank champagne and caviar and so forth from France while the people stood in line for bread and milk the reason and Ceausescu knew they were stealing of course but he wanted them to steal in fact if you didn't steal you were suspect And the reason is he was creating his own oligarch system. Their fate and their wealth depended on his and the system remaining in power. Okay? So nobody wanted to topple him. Nobody wanted to topple the communist system, at least those in power, because they were getting wealthy off of it. Damn the people who were starving. So the oligarch system continued even during communism. After communism fell, there was a transition process. 
during the whole time that these people were stealing the Securitate, the Secret Service was documenting their corruption. When the communism fell, the Securitate had all these dossiers. That's why I call it the Bucharest dossier, because everybody had a dossier, and it, it, inside it was all the evidence of their theft. So the Securitate realized they had a gold mine. They used all of these dossiers to blackmail all the people that remained in the government during the transition process. And not only did they do that, but they also bribed them. They even gave them a secret percentage of new companies. So what happened was when the transition started, government-held companies had to be privatized. (coughs) Sorry, this was supposed to be done. Uh, legally and so forth, spread out the wealth, they all ended up in the hands of a few of these Securitate officials who had all these damning documents and could blackmail everybody who stood in their way, including parliamentarians and judges and so forth. So the new oligarchs ended up being the old Securitate elite, And that happened in Bulgaria, it happened in the Czech Republic, it happened in most of the other places. So they are the new oligarchs that run the country to this day. It doesn't matter what party is in power. Um, The funny thing is that you don't need communism to create oligarchs because we had them all over history. So we have countries like Turkey, for instance, with the leader Erdogan, who has been in power for 20 years. He created his own system of oligarchs by giving no-bid contracts to his friends and allies. And um, they have been able, in turn, to buy media companies, which spew out propaganda, which is the the, uh, king's and the communist system's strongest weapon, by the way, uh, propaganda. Um, And so they uh, remain in power indefinitely. And, you know, the question is, do we have oligarchs in America, right? By the strict definition, we don't, because nobody gave Bill Gates his wealth. Uh, He created it. But the wealthy in America have a lot of sway through campaign contributions, which has been called a legal form of bribery. They can control how politicians vote. You only have to look at tax laws and gun laws to know what I'm talking about. And um, and so they also buy media companies, which they use to spew out outright propaganda in one instance, uh, but also to sway uh, the news and how it's it's delivered in, in most instances. And so... Propaganda is very powerful, and we can be, I mean, we're used to it to some degree because uh, advertising is propaganda, really, and so you would think we'd be immune to it, but we're not. In political propaganda, we're very susceptible to it. Uh, As we come down, and and thank you so much, but we're coming down about nine minutes, and I want to kind of get back to, like, the... Uh, and I appreciate that de- the definition of what, what, the, what, the, what, the, what that is. The, but the Bucharest legacy, uh, 
what is 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 Boris Boris and Bill are still in this story, and I know it says that at one point Boris passes away. Is does that happen in the Bucharest legacy? The Bucharest legacy begins with Boris already dead. Oh. And so um, we learn what happened to Boris, at least what happened on the surface in the in the the end of the first book. Uh, So by the second book, three years later, uh, Boris has died, and so we're all searching for Boris. At least they are, but he's really only there in spirit. And as the um, as the story becomes more and more complicated, we find out what the oligarchs are involved in, how Boris was intertwined with them, who created the oligarchs, and who continues to support them. And um, it is a a bit of a maybe too realistic or maybe cynical view of how the CIA works, but I think it is um, based on fact. So, at least the facts that I found. Now, how many how many books are in the series? You, you're working on a third book in the series, correct? So, what's the title of that, and when do you expect that to be out? And how many books <laughs> will there be in have, the in the Bucharest series? <laughs> I don't have a title for it yet. Um, I still need a few more months to finish it, and. Uh, you know, probably a year after that before it comes out. So it's, it takes a whole year for a book to be published after it's submitted. So um, it's going to be a year and a half at least before the third book comes out. And because uh, the second book just came out in June, so give me a little time to work on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. How many books do you expect in the series? Is the third book the, the end of the story and you're going on to another story or will there be another book in the series? It all depends. I mean, it all depends on how it's received, whether people want another one uh, or, uh, you know. I have another side to me also, which is the medical side. The... Uh, I've been working on another book, uh, which is more in the Michael Crichton uh, genre of uh, scientific thrillers. So we'll see which way I go. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's, uh, Jekyll and Hyde in me. Uh, One is the, you know, the Romanian uh, espionage type background, and the other one is the, the medical side. Okay. Now you also wrote and published a book of, of short stories, The Conclave 2021. Are these short stories related? Do they focus on a single theme, or no. or several themes? What what are the stories in Conclave 2021? No, I, what what is the? I the only theme? have. Uh, that's not uh, the whole book. Uh, is not my short stories. It's a compilation of stories from different uh, authors. So I have two short stories in there among uh, more than a dozen others. So they have nothing to do with with the book or the books. So they're different. Uh, you're a contributor to a... To a uh, do you like writing short stories, and have you ever thought about publishing through the, like a Kindle Vela? Well, look, I've been... I, I grew up in, you know, in the writing short stories because all of these... Um, uh, uh, 
writing courses, they have you working on short stories because you can't be working on a novel for a semester. So um, short stories, believe it or not, are harder to write. Um, Who was it? There was another author who wrote a long letter, and at the end of it, said, I'm sorry this letter is so long, but I didn't have time to write a short one. (laughs) And the reason is that it's harder to write a concise, well-constructed short story than to write a novel, because in a novel you are given more more leeway to go off on on small tangents and so forth. But uh, writing a short story, first of all, doesn't have a lot of readers. So publishing house rarely publishes. I mean, you have to be well-known to publish a collection of short stories, usually, and uh, because it doesn't usually sell a lot of copies. So if you want to, it's easier to break out in a novel than it is in a collection of short stories. Mm. Can you share three to four steps that you've taken, William, that you personally have found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? Well, first of all, getting published is the biggest obstacle. And before that obstacle, getting an agent is the biggest obstacle. In fact, getting an agent has become so difficult, you almost need an agent to get an agent. Um, Because um, they they are swamped with query letters, which is how you approach an agent. You write a one-page query letter describing your book and a little bit of yourself, and you can go online to find the format of a query letter, but it is very difficult to even get them to read your manuscript. They usually want the first 10 pages, let's say, or the first 50 pages, and uh, most of the time they have interns reading reading them before the the intern decides to pass it on to the actual agent to read because there are just too many. They get hundreds of these requests every week. So getting an agent is difficult. Um, And then, you know, the other problem is, okay, so you got an agent and then you are then being introduced to the publisher how, as a what. So in my case, it happens to be an espionage book. And then you're put into this box by the publisher. They like the book, they want to publish it, but then they want another book like in the same genre. And then the third book in the same genre. And so you're suddenly an espionage writer <laughs> when you may not have thought of yourself as one when you started out with. It just happens to be the first book that was um, um accepted for publication. And so then you want to figure out how do you expand? How do you um, uh, get into other types of writing and have your publisher accept it and uh, have the public accept it? Um, One of the things you also have to do is publishers don't do a lot of marketing anymore. And so you need to hire your own marketing company to market you, to make appointments with you, for instance, for an interview and so forth uh, 
social media and uh, podcasts and uh, television and so forth. So you have to spend money in order to uh, put out your name. Um, Now, it just happens that uh, the book, as a result, was now optioned for a film, which is great news. Um, And so that, uh, if that ever happens, that will... Uh, be something. <laughs> but oh, you never know. yes, that would be. Oh, my goodness. <coughs> and, I, so, and I hope it does happen for you. And we, and we, William, we have run out of time. I, that would be fabulous. I definitely would definitely watch that movie and remember this interview. So I wish you the very best, and I hope that that comes through for you. Um, to our off-the-shelf listeners, thanks for tuning in today. This was a very interesting, exciting interview. We didn't get to all the questions that I wanted to ask with William Moss. He's the author of the uh, Bucharest Legacy, the Bucharest Dozier. He's working on the third book. The second just came out in June. So in a year later, you can uh, look for the third. He has two short stories in the Conclave 2021. He's won numerous awards and just heard him say that the Bucharest Dozier has been optioned for a movie, and we certainly hope that that actually comes through. You can visit William online at williammaz.com, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-M-A-Z.com, and encourage you to go out and get a copy of the Bucharest, those here in the Bucharest Legacy, and look for his third book. Thank you, William, for being here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please come back next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or New York City time. And so we'll bring you another phenomenal author, another wonderful guest here on Off the Shelf. William, I'll send you or your agent a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you so much. As I always tell you, remember, you are awesome. You are incredible. You're phenomenal. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself. Bye for now. Thank you.